All right. Um, if you're new, we have been uh, slowly working our way through Matthew's gospel. About five years, I think, we've been in Matthew's gospel. And just last week, we finished the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew chapter 24 and 25, two chapters where Jesus talks about his second coming, his return. It's very intense. He talks about plagues and wars and famines. Uh, He talks about him returning and judging the world. And it ends with the sheep and the goats judgment. Some people go to heaven, some people go to hell. All right. So it's been an intense, what, year? I don't know how long we've been in there. All right. So we're done with that. We're going to take a breath here, and today we're going to focus on Thanksgiving. All right. And um, this should be a, a, an uplifting sermon to get us focused on a week of Thanksgiving. So here's what I want to do. I want to go back to the very first Thanksgiving that took place uh, in America, fall of 1621, and we're going to see what we can learn from the pilgrims, all right? And um, let me begin with a little Thanksgiving quiz, see how, how much you know about Thanksgiving. So here we go. Quiz question number one. The pilgrim's dress was A, drab, B, black, white, and gray, C, colorful. A and B. Actually, shock, it was colorful. Okay. In fact, actual photo of, no. Um, (laughs) These people are recreating what it may have looked like, and they used various dyes um, and had uh, bright colors. Um, This, I, I, I think this is a Walmart hat, actually. Not really going for the look, the, the, the green and the pumpkin orange look. But um, I think we get the idea that it was black and white because all we have are woodcuts, and um, they actually had colorful clothes, all right? So there's shock number one. Uh, question number two, the Pilgrim's original ship was called the Santa Maria, the Nina, the Pinta, the Mayflower, the Speedwell. How many of you say uh, the Mayflower? Raise your hand. How many of you say the Speedwell? Oh, see, you guys know your, know your stuff. It was the Speedwell. Uh, what we're going to find out is, yeah, that's an actual photo of the Speedwell. Um, we're going to find out they started out on the Speedwell, and they joined up with the Mayflower, but the Speedwell took on water, so they ended up on the Mayflower. But the original was the Speedwell. Okay. The voyage across the sea lasted... 14, 41, 50, 66, or 100 days? What do you think? 66 days across the sea, okay. How many passengers were on the Mayflower? 52, 102, 202, 402. Before they died, died, yes. They just kept throwing them overboard, right? There were 102 passengers on the Mayflower. What percentage died during the first winter? 50% of them died during that first winter. Okay. The Indian who befriended the pilgrims was Pocahontas, Squanto, Tonto, 
or Potawatomi? Squanto, very good. The first Thanksgiving lasted one day, two days, three days, or a week? Three days. But my wife argues that it took four days to prepare, three days to eat, so it counts. You know, they had to go to Sam's Club. They had to get, you know. Right. All right. So um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a kind of a, a history lesson, incorporate some scripture into it, and see if we can learn some things from the pilgrims. First thing I want us to see uh, is that they had courage. Okay, let me take you back before they came to America to England. Now, the Protestant Reformation had already started and uh, the German Protestant Reformation that Martin Luther started was based on truth. As Luther read the Bible and he saw what the Bible said about the gospel, he said, now wait a minute. What my Bible tells me and the practices of the church, they don't go hand in hand. Something's wrong here. And he called for the church to reform. They didn't. He got kicked out. And the Protestant Reformation started. Now, move to England. England was Roman Catholic until King Henry VIII, right, King Henry VIII uh, could not have a child with his wife. So he got a brilliant idea. I'm going to divorce her and marry somebody else who can give me a child. Plus, I kind of like her. Right? Um, the church said, no, we can't grant that to you. So King Henry VIII said, well, I like this, this Reformation thing. I'm going to start my own church. And the Church of England, the Anglican Church, was started when King Henry VIII said, I am now the head of the church. Right? So the, the Continental Reformation was based on biblical truth. The English Reformation based on hormones. Okay? So King Henry uh, basically says, we are going to uh, start a new church, the Anglican Church. But it was very similar to the Roman church, as it is today. Now, there were a group of true believers, we call them Puritans, who felt that the new Anglican church was way too much like the Roman church. Now, not all the Puritans thought the solution was to split away. Some of them felt that they should stay within the Anglican church and try to bring about reform. Okay, Other Puritans said, no, we are going to split away, and those were called the separatists or pilgrims. Okay? Now, there was a group of separatists in a, uh, a little village called Scrooby in Nottinghamshire. Sounds like an explosion of a Scooby-Doo cartoon with Lord of the Rings, right? But it's a little, little community of pilgrims who said, we are not going to worship according to the Anglican church. Now, they experienced threats, imprisonment, and even execution. 
So they said, you know what? We, we cannot submit to this kind of worship. So we're going to move. Now, they didn't go to America first. Does anybody know where they first fled to? Yes, Holland. They went to uh, the Dutch Netherlands, okay, put on their wooden shoes, and that's where they thought they could worship the Lord, according to the Bible. But, uh, first of all, they started to lose their identity. Their children were being tempted by the Dutch way of life, okay, and they were given the lowest jobs because they were the newcomers. So they said, you know what? We've heard of a new world across the sea. So they bought a boat called the Speedwell. And the plan was to sail across the sea. Now they joined up with another boat called the Mayflower. And they set out twice. And the Speedwell took on water. So they had to go back to England and of the two ships, they had to figure out who actually is going to go. And they whittled it down to 102 passengers. Now, um, only half of them were pilgrims. The other half were not believers. And the name stuck. They were the strangers. So, 102 people stuck on a boat. Half of them intensely serious followers of Christ, the others not, um, and it was a rough voyage. 66 days on the open sea, it was cold, there were waves, there was seasickness, there was scurvy, there was persecution, but finally they made it to New England. The first winter, only 52 of them survived, so half of them died that first winter. All right? So here's the first thing that I want you to see from the pilgrims. It took courage to move. It took courage to risk their lives. In fact, half of them lost their lives. So here's the question I want to ask us. What doctrines, what beliefs about God are you willing to risk your life for? What truth are you willing to die for? By the way, the Bible does tell us that one day we may need to die for our faith. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of the persecuted saints they loved not their lives even unto death. Who knows where we're headed as a country, as a world? Are you willing to die for certain truths? And if so, what are those truths? You know, not every truth is worth dying for. Okay? I remember a while back lamenting over the condition of a church with another person. And I was concerned that the gospel was not being preached. You know what their gripe was? They used grape juice instead of real wine in communion. I go, what? That's, that's your complaint? Oh, yeah, he's going to take a stand on real wine versus grape juice. So, you know, not every person who takes a stand is taking a stand for things that matter. Some people are just stubborn. I want my real wine for communion, 
Okay, grape juice is, is what I'm ready to divide the church over. Okay, what is worth dying for? Well, I would say the gospel. Do you even know what the gospel is? Paul said this to the Galatians, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Some translations say anathema. It means sent to hell. You better get the gospel right because those who preach a wrong gospel Those who are pastors, priests, religious leaders who preach a false gospel are accursed to hell. Why? Because the gospel they preach affects thousands of people who may end up in hell. We better get it right. And once you get it right, here's a question. Are you willing to die for it? Are you willing to die for the truth of the gospel? Because if somebody comes along and tries to alter the gospel, eternity hangs in the balance. Do we just go, oh, well, whatever you want to believe? Or are you willing to take a stand, not for grape juice, but for the truth of the gospel? Now, out of, out of uh, the Reformation, and we've gone over this uh, uh, many times before, But the reformers, they didn't come up with something new. They went back to the Bible. And they said the Bible teaches that salvation is by grace alone. In other words, you don't earn it. It's a gift from God. Through faith alone, you are saved by faith in Christ alone, not faith plus works, plus sacraments, plus what you do. In Christ alone, coexist, you know? Can't we all just get along and all... All these different religions will get you to heaven? No, it's Christ alone. Right? So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the authority of Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Are you willing to die that the Bible, and the Bible alone, is the sole authority, sola scriptura? Not the councils, not the popes, not even the MacArthur study notes. That may be helpful, but it is Scripture alone where we get our final marching orders, all for the glory of God alone. The pilgrims were willing to die, risk their lives, risk their families to cross the sea so they could worship God according to truth. What are you willing to die? So the first thing we see from the pilgrims is courage. Second thing, providence. What is providence? Providence is seeing God's hand work and provide through ordinary means. Okay? Miracles are when God provides in a miraculous way, when he turns off natural law and intervenes supernaturally. Providence, on the other hand, is God working through ordinary means to provide. The pilgrims saw the hand of providence. You know, when they first landed at Plymouth, most of them stayed on the boat. Several of them, though, went uh, as a search party looking for a place to set up a settlement. They found an abandoned 
Indian community. The fields were cleared. There was a river or a stream running through it, so there was a water supply. It was on a hill, so it was a great lookout. And it was on the bay. It had a seaport. God provided a ready-made plot of land for them. Now, just because providence is working doesn't mean there are no hardships. Half of them died that first winter. Right? But then they got through that first winter. Now, they had heard of attacks by Indians before. In fact, they actually experienced some. So they were surprised when one day an Indian comes walking into their camp and he speaks broken English. They were even more surprised when a few days later another Indian comes walking into their settlement who speaks perfect English. This is Squanto. Hey, I'm Squanto. Nice to meet you guys. Like your hat, right? And um, Squanto uh, befriends them, helps them with their, uh, their planting. The legend goes that he showed them how to take fish from uh, the sea and chop it up into fertilizer, and then they could uh, grow corn. Um, they knew how to hunt and fish, but he helped them uh, hunt and fish in that area. And he served as a translator between the Indian tribe and the pilgrims, so they could work out a peace treaty. So they lived peacefully together. They even celebrated the first Thanksgiving, 90 Indians with the surviving pilgrims, right? You go, well, how could an Indian speak English? Well, let me tell you the story of Squanto. By the way, there he is, actual picture. Good looking guy, isn't he? Huh? Now, this is from a movie about Squanto, right? Um, here's what happened. Four years earlier, he was kidnapped by an English, or actually a European slave trader. You know, just as um, people would go to Africa and trap Africans and bring them to America and sell them as slaves, some came from Europe and kidnapped American Indians and sold them as slaves back in Europe. That's what happened to Squanto. He was sold, but some monks in Spain bought him to get him out of slavery. They taught him English. They taught him about Christ, set him free. And then his intention was to come back to his village. So he got on another boat, but the boat ended up going to Canada. How disappointing would that be? Huh? So he goes to Canada, um, and then the boat goes back to Europe, and then finally it comes back after four years to his village, only to find out that the entire village had been wiped out uh, with a disease. And now there are these Europeans living in his village. Okay? Now, he has a choice. He can be bitter against the white man. I mean, they brought the disease that killed his village. They kidnapped him. Uh, he was treated as a slave. Or he could befriend these God-fearing people. He chooses to befriend them. Right? 
And he is used by God to actually help them. You know, I, I can't help but see the parallel between Squanto and Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember Joseph, one of 12 brothers? And he can interpret dreams from God. His brothers are jealous of him, so they're going to kill him. But rather than kill him, they sell him as a slave. He goes to Egypt as a slave. He becomes the master of a, of a house, and the wife likes him. He's a good-looking guy. Right? He says, no, 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 I am not, I, no, no, this isn't what I'm going to do. She accuses him of rape. He's thrown in a dungeon to rot away. Now, he interprets dreams of the prisoners, and word gets to the Pharaoh that this Hebrew in jail can interpret dreams. Right? So, the, the king or the Pharaoh has this, this strange dream. Seven Lean cows eat seven fat cows. He says, what does this mean? So they pull Joseph out, and Joseph says, oh, well, what that means is you're going to have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, and you need to prepare. And here's how you prepare. Flat tax, not graduated tax. Flat tax. Right? Store up for seven years, and then when the famine hits... We'll be good to go. And the Pharaoh goes, you are a genius. You're the prime minister now. So he goes from dungeon to prime minister overnight. Now, his good-for-nothing brothers come from the land of Canaan. They're, they're in a famine, and they come begging for food. Now, he's in his, his uh, Egyptian paint, so they can't tell that it's him. They come begging him for food. And then he reveals who he is. And rather than being mad, he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should keep alive as they are today. True of Joseph, true of Squanto. You meant it for evil, Kidnap me, sell me as a slave. I learn English, I learn about Christ, and now I am going to use it for good to keep you alive. Now, who does this ultimately point to? Christ. What man meant for evil. All along, God was planning for good, the salvation of many souls. Jesus Sold, betrayed for the price of a slave, whipped, beaten, nailed to a cross by evil men. But all along, God meant it for good to pay for our sin. Right? So here's the application Do you see the hand of God? providing for you in your life. This week, can you thank God for his provision again and again and again? And even though you may have been treated unfairly by people, are you going to sit and wallow? Oh, woe is me. Or are you going to say, God, even though man has harmed me, 
how do you want to use me for good? When trouble comes, when persecution comes, some people just choose to quit and be bitter. Other people say no. I believe Romans 8.28 is true. God's working it all together for good. God used me for good. Okay? One last thing we learn. Thankfulness. After surviving the winter, after planting uh, the crops in the spring, they had an abundance. And in the fall, they had their first Thanksgiving. 53 pilgrims. Okay? So 52 survived, so somebody had a baby, right? 53 pilgrims and 90 Indians got together for the first Thanksgiving. It lasted three days. Um, you go, did they just eat for three days? No. Um, apparently, they also played games. I don't know. Soccer? I don't know. What did they play? Um, apparently, the men went shooting Cowboys and Indians, is that what it was? <laughs> um, the men went shooting together. I actually have a photo from the original hunting trip. <laughs> Chief Wampum here is teaching little Brave how to shoot a deer. Okay, so... Uh, don't ask, okay, don't ask. It was actually a youth event, okay? So, yeah. all right. Um, and, the, and the youth behaved because they were all lined up. <laughs> yeah. All right, so three days of celebrating, of playing games, of feasting. What was on that first menu? Probable menu, um, roasted turkey, duck, goose, and venison. So that's where the turkey comes from. Fish, you ever have fish for Thanksgiving? Fish covered with leaves and baked in coals, whole pumpkin baked in coals, winter squash, beans boiled with venison, Peas, and that was a small bowl of peas because they didn't have a good pea crop that year. Dried corn boiled in water, corn bread, baskets of walnuts, hickory nuts, and ground nuts, dried strawberries, raspberries, grapes, cherries, and plums, and for dessert, pumpkin seasoned with honey and boiled cornmeal possibly served with honey. That was the sugar, right? The honey, okay? Now, um, this raises the question, wait a minute, I thought the pilgrims were serious, somber, fasting all the time. Here, it's like three days of golden corral. What's going on here? Right. Is it okay to have a big feast like this, or should we be fasting all the time? Okay. I heard uh, Michael Rodelnik on the radio. He's a teacher at Moody He's Jewish, and he said, you know, every Jewish festival in the Bible and in Jewish life can be summed up with three points. One, they try to kill us. Two, God delivers the Jews. Three, let's eat. Right? Eating, having a feast, 
is a part of the worship of God in the Bible and throughout history. Um, here's a great quote by Gilbert Melander about this tension in the Christian life about having possessions versus being, uh, renouncing possessions. Having food and abundance versus fasting. Here's what he says. What, how should you live? He says this. Christians are caught in the double movement of enjoyment and renunciation. Neither half of the movement, movement taken by itself is the Christian way of life. Trust is the Christian way of life. In order to trust, renunciation is necessary, lest we immerse ourselves entirely in the things we possess, trying to grasp and keep what we need to be secure. So there's an element where you are to renounce. You are to give away. You are not to keep everything God gives you. Otherwise, it becomes an idol. You're worshiping the gift, not the giver. So renunciation is a healthy part of the Christian life. But in order to trust, enjoyment is necessary, lest renunciation becomes a principled rejection of the creation through which God draws our hearts to himself. In other words, there is a time to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your abundance. Yes, we can gather and have a feast to your glory. But here's the key. As you feast, as you celebrate, is it truly an act of thanksgiving or is it an act of idolatry? If it's an act of thanksgiving, God is glorified. If it's just we're rich, fat, gluttonous Americans... That's idolatry. You know, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes deals with this. It starts with King Solomon, richest man on the planet, most powerful man on the planet, has a thousand women in his harem, has it all. Yet, at the end of his life, he says this, So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He couldn't enjoy anything he had, yet he had it all. And then he says this in the same chapter. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, I don't think he is saying life is meaningless, therefore, you know, get the best out of it. Just try to find happiness in eating and drinking. No, I think what he is saying is really there is nothing better than to be able to eat a meal, Drink and find enjoyment in your work. That would be great. But this also I saw is from the hand of God. The ability to enjoy is a gift from God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? I think of all the Hollywood people who are rich. But don't, don't give thanks to God and the broken lives and the lack of true joy. But then he says, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. What Solomon needed to learn is that ultimate joy is not found in stuff, in things, in riches. And when he got straight with God 
and he found his joy in God, he was then able to even thank God for the material things he had. And then, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, chapter 9. He says, go, eat your bread with joy. Do we still have the Panera today? We got like a truckload of bread, so there you go. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. In other words, put on your nice clothes. Okay. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That was their perfume. Put on your brute. I put some on today. Did you notice that, Caitlin? Huh? Smelled pretty good, don't I? All right, all right. Put on your fine clothes. Put on your brute. Put on your perfume, ladies. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. And here I think it means your fleeting life. It's going by quickly. All, right? all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. In other words... Get right with God. Repent of your sin. Come to Christ. Live for Him. And when you're in a right relationship with Him, yes, enjoy the material things that God has given you. Don't worship them. Don't let them become idolatrous. But this week, as you gather with your families and you have your turkey and you have all the trimmings and everything, truly enjoy it as a gift from God but don't worship the turkey. Okay? God is glorified when we receive good gifts from him, as good gifts from him, and we celebrate and we give him thanks for how he has blessed us. So those are three things that we can learn. On your, uh, on your sheet there, I have a little place for thanksgiving. Can you write down some things you're thankful for? Do you see his hand of providence in your life? How he has provided? Maybe not miraculously, but just through ordinary means. Are there relationships you can give thanks for? Are there material things you can give thanks for? Do you have a job? Can you give God thanks for that? Not that you worship these things. In fact, maybe that's one thing. Another application. What do you need to renounce? What have you turned into an idol? Not just that you're thankful for it, but you love it more than you love God, the giver of that good gift. And let's get that in right perspective and then truly give thanks this week. Let's have the worship team come on up.